When you said the kids were going to stay in here, special treat, who's special treat? <laughs> Candy special treat, okay. <laughs> All right. So, wow, packed house. Packed house. Someone told me Irma was here. I just, can you raise your hand, Irma? I want to see that. All right. All right, all right. <laughs> all right. I won't single anybody else out, but. Okay, so let's get started, okay? Because we only have a limited amount of time, and those of you who know me know I talk way too long, so we're going to get right into the Word this morning. The sermon is called, Why Do Christians Celebrate Christ's Resurrection? That's the title of the sermon this morning. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, first 19 verses of that particular book. If you want, you can turn there now in your Bibles. If you're using one of those blue church Bibles and you open to page 961, that'll bring you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, beloved, well, people, people celebrate the strangest things, and you got a foretaste of that. I actually went over to the nursery and took a shot with my camera real quick before I came in here. (laughs) This is how we get the kids to be good. This is actually, I was just researching, what are some of the the strangest things that we celebrate in our world? This is called, and I'm probably saying it wrong, El Calacho, El Calacho, and it means the devil's jump, the devil's jump, and the idea here is this man, and this crowd you see is actually just a segment of the picture because the crowd is huge. This is celebrated in Spain every year, and these men are supposed, Supposedly dressed up like the devil. I guess that's the flames on the bottom of his pants and his shirt. I'm, I'm not sure. And the, the babies lying underneath him are put there because as this man jumps over them, the theory is, is that he will cleanse those babies of their original sin. He will help guard them against illness and evil spirits. And he will ensure them safe passage through life. That is, if they survive the festival. There's only like a few people that are really shocked and awed by the whole thing. The rest are like, this is normal for guys to be jumping over our babies. This practice dates back to, you can drop the slide now, this dates back to 1620. At least that's what they think. But the origins of this festival or celebration are unknown. They're not sure where it came from and and why exactly it is they, they started doing it. Well, unlike that celebration, that festival, El Calacho, the origins of our celebration today here and now are known, and they are well documented. They are well documented. Christians in many places, in many different parts of the world, as we speak, and as the sun turns, or actually the world turns around the sun, they're celebrating what they believe occurred almost two thousand years ago on a particular Sunday, on a particular Sunday, the Sunday when Jesus Christ, who had been killed, crucified, and put on the tomb on Friday, supernaturally, miraculously came back to life and appeared to many, not as a ghost, not as a spirit, but in a physical resurrected body. Now, beloved, on the surface, without any background information, this too might sound like a a strange celebration in some ways. So why do Christians continue to celebrate this day 
year after year after year? Is it just a silly tradition that has been passed down? Well, to address that question, I want to look at the text that I talked about this morning in 1 Corinthians, so make sure you're there. And I want to give you a little context, some background information that will help you understand what we're diving into here in 1 Corinthians. There was a group of Christians who lived in a city called Corinth. Corinth is located in southern Greece, in southern Greece. This group of believers, or church, had many eternal problems, conflicts, and questions, like many churches today. But they were really bad. They were really bad. The Apostle Paul had previously founded this church on his, or one of his missionary journeys to that area. And we read about that in Acts chapter 18. Paul then writes 1 Corinthians, this letter, to address the multiple issues that this church was having, these eternal conflicts and problems. One of those issues, just one of those issues, was a debate over the resurrection of the dead. Not Christ's resurrection. They were not debating that. They were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead for Christians, for people, period. No future resurrection No bodily resurrection of the dead. So the Apostle Paul responds to that very idea in this section of 1 Corinthians. For our purposes, we're only going to deal with a few, or just a small portion of 1 Corinthians 15, not the entire chapter. The entire chapter addresses resurrection in every way. We're just going to deal with the first 19 verses. So if you would, look at your Bibles, look at chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians Look at verse 1 and follow along with me as I read from God's Word. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There is much in this text we could talk about, but we're going to limit our discussion today specifically to the subject of the resurrection of Christ that Paul referred to multiple times in this passage in order to show the Corinthians that they were dead wrong. Dead wrong about there being no resurrection of the dead. So if you have a bulletin on your lap, you can use it on the inside, the left side. There is an outline that you can follow. Inside there you'll see this note that we're going to, this morning, consider two reasons Two reasons that help explain why Christ's resurrection continues to be commemorated, that is, celebrated, memorialized, remembered, so that we might observe this occasion with the honor and the joy that it deserves, that it's worthy of. The first reason, beloved, that we'll pull from this text is the historical reality of Christ's resurrection. The historical reality of Christ's resurrection. In order to show the Corinthians the error of their thinking, he reminds them of the gospel message they had previously embraced, that they had already accepted and believed. That's how he starts here. Look back at the text with me. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul writing says, Now I would remind you, brothers, brothers in the spiritual sense, brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, you accepted it in which you stand now, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now the word gospel simply means, beloved, and we've said this before, good news or good message. In this case, Paul is specifically referring to the good news about Jesus Christ. The good news, beloved, about who he is about what he has done and what he will do in the future. It is the gospel, beloved, that Paul preached that was the basis for the Corinthians' hope of their salvation. Paul reminds them of the gospel or good news beginning in verse 3. As he summarizes it, look back at your text, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul was showing them that their salvation is actually rooted, grounded, connected to believing several things about Jesus Christ. That is, that he died for our sins. That is that he was buried. Now, beloved, you might wonder, why does he mention buried? Well, it emphasizes the fact that the guy actually died. He didn't fake it. He was dead. It's interesting, just so you know this. It concerns me when great leaders talk about the three great religions of our world and they Couple together Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Maybe you don't know this, 
But in the Quran, in Surah 4, 157, they specifically say that Jesus did not die. It's a sham. We just think he died. Now they talk about Jesus, but they do not teach that Jesus actually died on the cross for our sins. You understand that? So this is significant. Because part of the gospel is that he did die. And he died for our sins. And, beloved, the other part of that gospel is that he was raised or resurrected from the dead. He didn't stay dead. But he rose again on the third day. All this took place, Paul says, according to the scriptures. To the scriptures. In other words... The resurrection of Jesus may be a shocking event. And it is. It is a shocking event to consider, especially because it is not part of our normal human experience to see people resurrected, right? We don't see that resurrected. We don't see that on a regular basis. And neither did they. So it was shocking. But Paul is saying, listen, it shouldn't be too shocking because the Scriptures testified to this. They witnessed to this. They spoke to this very thing, that this was going to happen. What was going to happen? That Christ, the Redeemer, was going to die. As it says, he would die for sins according to the Scriptures. He was going to have to die. And according to the Scriptures, he would be raised again. Now, we don't know for certain what Old Testament passages Paul was thinking about when he wrote that, but certainly a passage like Isaiah 53 that speaks about the Messiah being crucified or killed or taking our sins upon himself. And then Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. These passages certainly speak to that one specifically, to the resurrection of that Messiah. It's the same passage that Peter uses in Acts 2, verses 25 through 31, when he is explaining the gospel to the Jews and telling them about the risen Savior. So here's the thing. The concept of a bodily resurrection is not a human invention or fantasy. Okay, that's the point. But it was written about in God's word in ages past. It was already spoken of. Now let me paraphrase the next section before we read it in Corinthians. Paul goes on to say basically this. And in fact, we have the scriptures testifying to this reality that Christ had to be raised from the dead. But we also have witnesses to the reality of that resurrection. Human witnesses that God's word refers to. For various people have seen the risen Savior, Jesus, with their very own eyes. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 4. Look your eyes back at the text. Paul writes that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. That's a name, that's Peter's original name, Peter the Apostle. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Beloved, fallen asleep just means they died. That's a reference to them being dead. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. These eyewitnesses provide strong evidence for the historical reality of Christ's resurrection. Now listen, 1 Corinthians was written approximately two decades 
almost 20 years after Christ's resurrection appearances. So what you have going on here is as a result of this period of time that has passed since the resurrection, there are a few of those 500 that had been witnesses to that resurrection that had since passed on, died. That's all he's saying, but he's saying, but listen, the majority of them remain alive and they can testify to what it was they saw. Eyewitnesses, beloved. In Lee Strobel's book called The Case for Christ, this is one man's investigation to to set out to prove whether or not Christ is the real deal or not. And at the end of his investigation, the only conclusion he can come to is he's the real deal. He is Lord. He resurrected. In that book, regarding the the passage here about the 500 witnesses who saw the resurrected Christ, I want you to read this quote. I'll read it for you. Lee writes, Paul apparently had some proximity to these people. He says, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Paul either knew some of these people or was told by someone who knew them that they were still walking around and willing to be interviewed. Now stop and think about it. You would never include this phrase unless you were absolutely confident that these folks would confirm that they really did see Jesus alive. I mean, Paul was virtually inviting people to check it out for themselves. He wouldn't have said this if he didn't know they'd back him up. In addition, beloved, to the 500, we are told that James was also a witness to Jesus' resurrection. That's what Paul includes here. Look back at the text. It just says in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, then he appeared to James. If you don't know, Jesus had four half-brothers. We refer to them as half-brothers because only Jesus had God as his father. One of them was named James. And I believe that's the one who's being referred to here by Paul. Now listen. During Jesus' ministry on earth, Jesus' family, his brothers, they did not believe that Jesus was anything special. They did not believe him. They certainly did not believe that he was the Son of God or the promised Messiah or the Savior that he claimed to be. And you can check this out for yourself. You can look at John 7, 5 that specifically says that his brothers did not believe him. You can look at Mark 3:21. That section there talks about them thinking that he was out of his mind. You know, it's always hardest to convince your family, right? They're always the tough ones. It was no different. It was no different. But something radically changed James' mind. Something changed his mind, beloved, about Jesus because we know that later on, after Jesus' death, he became a faithful follower of Jesus. In fact, he became a leader of the Jerusalem church, a very large Christian church in Jerusalem. And we're also told by a historian named Josephus that James was ultimately executed, murdered. For what? For crime? No. For proclaiming Jesus as the risen and living Lord. He wasn't telling people Jesus was a martyr who died a martyr's death. He was out telling people, my half-brother, he's the real deal i saw it and he was killed for it 
The only thing that could have changed James's mind about his brother was, was seeing him physically resurrected before his eyes. He saw it, beloved. Jesus was dead, but now he was alive. And it was just as he had predicted would happen. Oh, they'll kill me in Jerusalem. I'll be buried. But three days later, I will rise. Along with James, beloved, the other apostles, including Paul, who wrote Corinthians and were witnesses to the resurrected Jesus, hear me now. Just hear me. They suffered greatly for their faith. And they died. Most of them, not from natural causes, but for testifying to the resurrected Jesus Christ. Simply telling people, He is Lord, He is risen, and He is alive. Now, beloved, if the resurrection is a lie, if it's just a big fat lie that some bunch of guys got together and made up and we're stupid enough to keep celebrating this thing and believe in it, it's some, some conspiracy. I'm not sure why they would have done it, but let's just pretend for a second, okay? Would you do that with me? It's a lie. It's a conspiracy. If it is, as it has been suggested by some skeptics and unbelievers, then it becomes impossible to explain the behavior of those who said they witnessed it. It's impossible. Why do I say that? They were radically transformed by what they saw into bold professors. These poor little disciples who went off with their heads down after Jesus was crucified thinking it was all over. Transformed when they saw Jesus risen again. And not only did they profess to that resurrection, but they suffered and died for it. Now, beloved, it makes no sense to me. I would probably say it would make no sense to you also for them to continue suffering for something that they knew wasn't true. How much do you have to torture somebody before they say, okay, I'm kidding, it was just a big lie. But they couldn't. They couldn't recant. They couldn't take it back. Because they had seen it. And it rocked them to the core. There have been many unsuccessful attempts, beloved, by unbelievers over the years to discredit the historical reality of Christ's resurrection. But none of them, not a one, has been able to stick. Not a one. Which is why, beloved, we are here right now. It's why Christians continue to celebrate what the early church witnessed with their very eyes over 2,000 years ago. He is risen. That was your cue. We'll get it. Let's try it again. He is risen. Yes, He is risen. Beloved, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a myth. It's not a fantasy. It's not a conspiracy. But it is reality. It is reality. And as a result, that makes it one of the most significant events in all human History, an event that cannot and certainly should not be ignored, be brushed away, pretend it didn't happen. 
It is worthy of being commemorated. It is worthy of being celebrated. Now, beloved, let me remind you, especially since we have a mixed crowd, so who knows who's here today and what you're thinking, but this wasn't just some guy who got back up out of the grave. That would be amazing enough, right? Someone actually resurrected, never to die again. Certainly we should take notice of that, ask some questions about that, maybe even celebrate that. But beloved, this guy claimed to be the son of God. This guy made claims to being divine. This man claimed to be the Lord of the universe. The Lord of creation. The Lord of us. By the way, Scripture says repeatedly that it was God who raised him. And you got to deal with that. You got to deal with that. Either this is not a historical reality, and I don't know how you get around it. You just have to flat out ignore the facts, ignore the evidence, bury it, suppress it, pretend it doesn't exist. That's the only way you get around it, beloved. But once you examine the evidence, really look at it with an open mind, like people always say they have, but they never do, with a truly open mind, you can't get around it. And now you've got to deal with it. This guy who claimed to be the Son of God, the Lord of the universe, and the one who God himself, it means he must be pretty important, God himself raised from the dead, he did raise. You know, as a nation, we continue, beloved, to honor the dead of 9-11, right? By commemorating that sad day every year. Don't you think that's worthy of commemoration? I think it is. Well, Easter is a little different in that it is a glorious day that we commemorate and celebrate, but not in honor of the dead. But in honor of of the living one, the one who is alive, beloved, who powerfully overcame death once and for all, never to die again. This is not resuscitation, beloved. You know what I'm talking about? That's something that happens when someone's on the bed and they have died and their heart goes down or their mind shuts down and they boom, boom, hit him and he comes back or they kick him. I'm not sure all that they do, but somehow the person comes back. Resuscitation, boom, life. There was no life, life is there. But guess what happens to that person? They still die. This is not resuscitation. This is not Jesus just coming back to live for another 20 years. This is resurrected unto life eternal, living now 2,000 years later, seated at the right hand of God in interceding for his beloved saints, those he purchased with his very blood. I don't know how I got off track there, but let's go back. All right. All right. It's an historical event, beloved. It's the real deal. This thing happened. That's why we celebrate it. It's not some fantasy, not some reality, not some conspiracy, not some guy dressed up as a devil jumping over babies with no origins, don't even know why they do it. But what specifically, and this is where I really want to get today, 
What specifically makes this historical event so important to Christians? Oh, this is good, beloved. This is worth the price of admission right here. 1 Corinthians, look back. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 12. And we're looking right now at reason number two. Reason number two that we commemorate this day. We celebrate this day. We get a little crazy about this day with all the flowers. Get all excited, all the new dresses. We get crazy about this day. Here's why. Maybe you don't get crazy. I hope you'll get crazy after this, okay? This is why. It's the hypothetical results of no resurrection. Now follow me. Remember that Paul is addressing an issue. The church in Corinth had said, we don't believe. At least some of them were telling people, we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So Paul is, is going to the resurrection of Christ and he's saying, are you kidding me? Do you remember I preached to you about the resurrection of Christ? In fact, you've got to believe that in order, in order to be saved. He resurrected. There were witnesses to his resurrection. The scriptures spoke to and testified to his resurrection. All right, now listen. I'm going to drop some hard logic on you. That's what Paul's doing right now. He was a master at this. Let me bust out the hypothetical on you. You want to you pretend that there's no resurrection of the dead? Let me show you what that means. Look back at 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, verse 12, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He's just reviewing everything. He just said, why are you saying that? Are you denying Christ resurrected? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul speaks, as I said, hypothetically here, meaning that he assumes for a moment the sake of, for the sake of the argument that there is no resurrection of the dead. And if that be the case, then therefore there is no resurrection of Jesus, even though Paul and the other apostles for the last 20 years have been proclaiming that very message and being beaten and imprisoned and suffering for that very thing. But okay. All right, Corinthians. Let's pretend for a second. There's no resurrection of the dead. Logically, then, we have to believe Christ didn't resurrect. So what are the results? And by the way, so what? Let's just say that right up front. Let's just say, so what? So what if Christ is dead and still in the grave? So what? You want to know, so what? Well, he starts to list them. But the most important one, the one that stands on top of the hill and smacks you in the face is this one right here in verse 17. This is the big so what. Look back at the text, beloved. See God's word here. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, you want to play this game? If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Beloved, your faith is futile. Here's another translation of that. Your faith is worthless. Your faith is worthless. Here's another translation. Your faith doesn't mean anything. Big fat waste of faith. In my wording. If Christ has not been raised, then having faith in Him is a faith that accomplishes nothing produces nothing and saves no one. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. It is a pointless, 
fruitless faith. Why? Why is it a pointless, fruitless faith? Why is it futile? Because, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. Well, I could go, I could go in two hours right here. But I know I can't do that because you have lunches to get to and events for today. I cannot begin to tell you how deep. This is the most important thing to Paul. You notice he didn't, he didn't say anything like, well, listen, this is why your faith is futile because you're not going to have health then. You won't have physical health or prosperity. He didn't say anything about that. He didn't say, wow, because, you know, if Christ is dead, then I, we're not going to be rich and, and all well. He's not saying that. What the most important thing to Paul was, was that would mean, beloved, if he is not risen, we are still in our sins. Now, see, it's interesting because some churches, sadly, some churches, they don't want to talk about sin anymore. They want to talk about a bunch of other stuff. The only problem with that is the Bible talks about sin all the time. They're constantly spewing out the whole sin thing. So I don't know how to get around it unless I just avoid the Bible. But it is what it is, beloved. Whether you know it or not, our greatest problem is not a messed up marriage, is not a bunch of messed up kids, is not looking for work. Those are all problems. But it is not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is our sin problem. That is our greatest problem. That's why Paul says, listen, your faith is worthless. Now, what does this mean, to put it simply, if Paul's hypothetical is not a theory but reality, let's pretend it is reality, and Christ is still dead, you know what he's saying? He's saying, your sins, my sins, remain unforgiven. They remain unforgiven, and as a result, we remain accountable to God for every single last one. Do you see how big that is? Maybe no, maybe not. Let me keep going. What this means, if I'm still in my sins, it means that I still carry the guilt of my sins. Now, beloved... Not just emotional guilt. We can talk about, I feel guilty because I've sinned. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the legal responsibility for them. That's what I mean when I use the word guilt. We remain, if Christ is dead, then we are still in our sins and we remain guilty for our crimes, our sins against God and our Creator. And you know what we're waiting for? His righteous condemnation, that's all you and I are waiting for. Living until we die and face Him and answer for every one of our sins. Beloved, God in His justice, in His justice, and this is where it gets really important for us, He must punish sins. He must, He has to. And if we are still in our sins, then the only thing you and I have to look forward to on Judgment Day, and there is a day coming is to fall before our Creator in fear. That's all you and I have to look forward to. Fall before Him. Drop in fear. And receive His just and holy 
punishment. You know why? Because he hates sin. He hates it and he has no tolerance for it. That's hard for us to get around, get our minds around, because we don't hate sin the way God hates sin. We should, but we don't. We tolerate sin. We dabble in sin. We see how far we can go before it's called sin. But not God. Let me read a passage, a couple passages to you just to remind you. Psalm 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. You take no delight in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. It may not live with you. You don't let it into your house. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Swallow that passage deep down into your heart and meditate on that for a while. That's what the Word of God says. Hate's a very strong word. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty. Abhors! Disgusted with! Vomits up! That's what the text says. He abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Proverbs 8:13. We could go on and on, but just for a few, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Perverted speech? You hate arrogance? Listen. We expect our judges to be just. Right? We want them to be just and to hold people accountable for their crimes. Is that right or wrong? I hope it's right. Now, we don't always have just judges, but we still want just judges. If a drunk gets into his car and drives his car into yours, and in the process kills one of your children sitting in your car, you would want that driver to pay for his crime. Right? Come on now. You wouldn't want the judge to say, you know what? It doesn't matter. It just, it just doesn't matter. Or, you know, this guy, he's done a lot of good things. He's done a lot of good things. Why don't we just give the guy a break? Or maybe he would just say, you know what? I feel sorry for the poor dope over there crying. Yeah, I know your kid's dead. But I feel sorry for him. So you know what? We're just going to let him off the hook. You know that's wrong. You know it deep down inside. That is wrong, wrong, wrong. Man chooses to get drunk and then put his keys into the ignition and drive his car and murder someone child. He should pay the price. Justice must be served. Right? You wouldn't want a judge like I just explained. Nor would you tolerate a judge that is unjust like that. You would, you would call for his removal. You might even, you might even remove him yourself. <laughs> if you were big enough and bold enough. I don't recommend that. That's not what you should do. But I'm just saying in that moment... 
What would be going through your heart and mind? Are you kidding me? Well, beloved, God is the most just God you will ever encounter. He is just. And He will not just let someone off the hook. He won't. You want a just judge? We've got one. We've got one. There is no escaping it. God cannot look the other way when it comes to our sin. He can't just say, I'm going to act like I didn't see it. Pretend like it didn't happen. Pretend like you haven't rebelled against me as your creator. Resisted me time and time again. Failed to do what I've asked you to do. Not done what I've asked you to do. And by the way, God does not grow old and senile like we do. So He does not forget. He does not forget. His record and memory are perfect. And the abundance of our sins fills to the overflowing point His record books. And it repulses His very holy nature. You got that? And beloved, everything I just said would remain to be true for everyone if Christ has not been raised. See, this is where you have to understand what's going on here. Christ's resurrection was and is the proof. Now hear me. You may have heard this before. Maybe it's the first time. But this is important. And you'll understand why this day is so awesome. His resurrection is the proof that when Jesus died on that cross, the one we've been singing about all morning, died on the cross for sinners in their place as their substitute, taking upon himself the full wrath of God against their sin. Isaiah 53. It is the proof then that God was fully satisfied with Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. Satisfied, beloved. That's the word. Now, not like a sadist. Not like a sadist. Someone who is satisfied in inflicting pain on a person for their own sick and perverted pleasure. God is not a sadist. When I say God was satisfied, it means that He was satisfied because His perfect justice, His perfect justice was accomplished or fulfilled when the penalty for sin had been paid in full, when Jesus completely and fully absorbed God's wrath, His anger, His holy terror, His perfect justice against every bit of it. And He was satisfied. Now listen. Death, as we're taught in the Bible was God's consequence for humanity's rebellion and disobedience to Him. started way back in Genesis in the garden. Death is not right. It's not right, beloved. It shouldn't be a part of our reality, but it is a part of reality because of sin and disobedience. Jesus on the cross paid the penalty for that rebellion and disobedience. Therefore, Jesus could no longer remain under the penalty 
of death. That's it, beloved. Here's how one writer puts it. When he was buried, that is Jesus, he lay a prisoner in execution for our debt, which as a surety, that's a word we don't use very often in our culture, but it, a surety means somebody who pledges to pay another's obligations when they default. So acting as a surety, paying our obligation, we have defaulted, he had undertaken to pay. On the third day, an angel was sent to roll away the stone and so to discharge the prisoner, which was the greatest assurance possible that divine justice was satisfied. The debt paid, or else he would never have been released. He never would have released the prisoner. Let me do it another way here because I think it's helpful to get your mind around this. Here's another quote from another man regarding this idea. When Christ died and shed his blood for our transgressions, he atoned for the sins that killed him. Since those sins are now covered and paid for, there is no reason for Christ to remain dead. His death was solely to pay for our sins. When they were perfectly paid for, there remained no warrant for his death anymore. It would indeed be unjust to keep him in the grave. He could not stay in the grave. It was impossible for him to be held by its power, as we read in Acts 2.24. But if Christ has not been raised, if that is the case, that he is dead and his body still lays in the earth somewhere, then his sacrifice, beloved, was evidently insufficient to pay for our sin debt. For he remains indebted to it by the fact that he remains dead. And so, if that be true, we remain in our sins. And as a result, when we die, we will remain dead and damned. Separated from God and awaiting eternal punishment for our sins. You see why this day is so important? That is what Paul means when he says in verse 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, if Christ be not raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, they've perished. That's the hypothetical result. If Christ had not been risen from the dead, all those who had died trusting in Christ's sacrifice on their behalf, believing that He had paid their sin debt fully and completely, are actually out of luck. They're still under their sin and therefore they have perished, meaning that they are lost eternally, forever separated from God, and they remain without any hope. One writer puts it this way, without the resurrection there could be no certainty of atonement. And the Corinthians would remain in a state of alienation and sin. Now the word atonement, sometimes people just don't know what that means. Let me make it simple for you. Reconciliation. Reconciliation or the ending of conflict and the restoration of peace between God and sinners. Atonement. But that happened 
by him removing the very thing that separated us from God and alienated us from him. That is our sin. The Holy One reconciled the unholy ones. But guess what, beloved? Here's the good news. It is just a hypothetical. It is just a hypothetical. Christ actually, indeed, did raise. And that's what it says in verse 20 of 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has been raised. He is risen. It is a historical reality. It is not a human fantasy. And so that means that all of those results of the hypothetical are not true. They will not come about. What this means for those of us who have placed our faith in their risen Lord Jesus Christ is it means this. It means, beloved, that our faith is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. It is not worthless. It is not pointless. But it actually accomplishes something. Our faith accomplishes something. It is meaningful. It is fruitful. For by Him, by Jesus Christ, we have been saved. Saved through faith in the One who bore our sins on the cross and took the punishment we deserved so that we, beloved, could be reconciled back to our Creator, back to God. We who have believed and trusted in the resurrected Christ are not awaiting condemnation. We are not awaiting wrath. We are not awaiting punishment. For Jesus' resurrection is our proof, our evidence, our confidence, our certainty that God was and is completely satisfied with Jesus' payment for our sins. And beloved... I'll tell you something that you already know. What is paid in full cannot be collected on again. And that is what it was meant when Jesus said from the cross, It is finished. Paid in full. I have suffered fully and completely for the sins of my people. They will never pay for them because I already have. Justice. God's justice has been served and the Holy Father is satisfied. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, beloved, validates. It validates the complete and total forgiveness of Christians' sins and the certain hope of reconciliation with our Creator. That's the reason we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why it's a big deal. That's what makes it such a special day. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so critical. Let me close with this. We have a mixed crowd, and by that it means we have people here that are not normally here on Sunday, and we are super, I am super excited that you are here. But I don't know where you are with the Lord. I don't even know where all the people that normally come are with the Lord. I don't know. I can't look into a, a human being's heart. They might, they might say Christian things. They might look like a Christian, whatever that means exactly. They might carry a big Bible. 
But I can't see into their heart. And we know, we know that many people come to church even regularly, yet they really don't have a relationship with the risen Lord. And certainly if you're here today and and this is maybe... You're just visiting, or maybe this is something you do. You come a couple times a year, you know, Easter, Christmas, or something like that. That's probably an indication you don't have a thriving relationship with the risen Lord. Because, beloved, you can't get around it. The Bible is clear. This faith that Paul said was futile, he's talking about something. It's a faith. It's a faith. It's a belief. It's a confidence. It's a hope. That faith, the Bible has much to say about it. And it is a faith that changes us. It is a faith that transforms us. It is a faith in the risen Lord. Putting your complete confidence and trust and hope in His sacrifice in your place. Paying for all of your sins that you might be reconciled back to God. And this faith does something to you. It causes you to follow after Him. Perfectly? No. Please. But persistently. Consistently. It causes you to to be changed. Because the Bible says you become born again. The Spirit of God Himself enters into that person. And it begins to transform them from the inside out. Revolutionize them. Beloved, there are some of you here today and I am and I have prayed and thinking right now and I'm trusting that God would convict you in your heart that He would reveal to you very clearly and loudly if you do not have a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Because if you don't, then you have not placed your faith in Him. Not really. This is more than just believing that Jesus existed or that even He died and maybe was resurrected, but it is a faith that transforms you. It is a faith that follows after Him. It is a faith that saves you truly and really. And beloved, I pray that God would reveal to you if you do not have that faith, because if you do not have that faith, according to Paul's testimony, according to the greater Word of God, you are still in your sins. You you remain unforgiven. I don't care what someone has told you, you remain unforgiven because you have not you have not embraced the only solution that a holy God has provided to deal with your issue and my issue. Our greatest issue, sin, rebellion against our creator and our God. And if you do not truly have faith in the risen one, you are still in your sins. You are right now under his wrath. And if you were to die now, you would face him not as a loving father, but as a holy and righteous judge that will enforce his justice to the uttermost. Beloved, for us who know Jesus Christ, really know Him, have a walking and living relationship with Him, 
This day rocks our soul. If we understand it, it should. I am free. I am free. Coming out from under the burden of my sin, I have been forgiven fully and completely. I stand before Him. Cleansed, beloved. I look forward to glory. I look forward to living with the Holy One forever. That's great. But for you here who don't have that, you have nothing to look forward to. And so, it doesn't have to stay that way. So what I'm going to do, I don't normally do this, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to ask you all to bow your heads. I'm going to ask you believers, I'm going to ask you to pray for the people in this room. Pray for them. For those who have not yet placed their faith, their trust, their complete hope and confidence in Jesus Christ, His sacrifice on their behalf, His righteous life, credited to their account that they might stand before a perfect and holy Creator. Pray for them right now. And every other head bowed. And I'm going to ask this. You don't have to come up here. You don't have to do any magic tricks. But right where you're sitting, beloved, if God is working on your heart, if you hear what I'm talking about, and you know in your deepest recesses of your soul, you do not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, a saving relationship. You might know about Him. You might even attend church. But you don't have a saving relationship. I'm going to ask you to think about that real hard right now. And I'm going to ask you to think about praying with me and asking the Lord Jesus Christ to save your soul. I'm going to go to the Father right now. Please keep praying. Father God, this day is glorious. It is glorious because we, as your followers, we celebrate our risen Savior, the one who... Your word says is seated at the right hand of you, Father. Majestic and awesome in all glory and authority. And Father, he sits there as the intercessor. He stands there as the one who has paid the price for our sins. That we might be forgiven and cleansed and reconciled back to you. That we might even come before you now. And praise your name and make our request known. Father, we glory in this day. But I know I have to believe, just based on experience, that there are people sitting in these seats right now who cannot glory in this day. Not really. They're here and we're glad they're here. But they have no hope. Their lives are a wreck. And deep down inside, they know something's wrong. Father, would you even now convict them? Would you grant them faith? The faith to believe. The faith to trust. Would you grant them repentance that they would turn from their their silliness and, and make a complete turn towards you and embrace you and embrace your solution for their problem? And for ours, the Savior who died for our sins.
Beloved, I'm speaking to you now with every head bowed, every eye closed. I would just write where you are if, if you're that person. Then I would say what we talked about earlier as we were singing the songs, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, for whosoever shall call on Him, believe in Him, put their faith and trust in Him, they will be saved. They will be saved. So I'm speaking to you now. If that's you and you want to be saved, I would, I would ask that you would pray this prayer after me to yourself out loud. I don't. It doesn't matter. But what's important is not the words. It's not the magic of the prayer. But it's the, it's the matter of the heart. If you can say these things and really believe them, then you will be saved. So for you. Repeat this prayer after me if it, is, if it is what you believe in your heart. Father God, I know that I am a sinner. That I have sinned against you. Not once, but so many times I have lost track. Father, I cannot make myself right with you. I cannot do enough to get on your good side. I am guilty. And I am worthy of your condemnation and your wrath. But Father, I believe that you have sent your perfect and holy Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. To come to this earth and live a perfect, righteous life. One that I could never live. And that He went to the cross. And on that cross, He did not die for His own sins. But He died for mine. He died for me. He died in my place. And He bore the wrath that I deserved. Father, I believe. I believe. And I put my trust in His sacrifice. Not what I can do. Not what I have done. Not what I will ever do. But what He has done and completed. I put my trust in that. And I believe that Your resurrection Jesus' resurrection is a validation of your satisfaction with Jesus' sacrifice on my behalf. That I can know, that I know, that I know that I am truly forgiven of my sins. Father, help me now to follow after my risen Lord, to pursue Him, to model Him, chase after Him, to know Him, to love Him. In Jesus' name, amen.